Father, once again, we, we slow down a little bit and look at your word. We consider it um, in all of its glory from all different angles uh, for one purpose and one purpose alone, to bring, uh, to bring praise and honor to declare the worth of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And as we spend a few times with your word in your word this morning, just a few minutes, Lord, may your glory be manifest in all we do and say in Jesus' name. Now, I'm not going to promise this sermon is short, but it's supposed to be. Um, We're going to be in the book of Acts in chapter one. We've been talking about Mary and I want to I want to give just a couple of final thoughts. I need to send the kids to God's backyard. I completely forgot. My apologies. You got to wave at me. I get distracted, especially when the sound system for some reason is possessed. It's not the sound guy's fault. Just sound systems some days are evil. Right, Bob? Some days, it's just the way they are. It's the true battlefield of spiritual warfare. Um, we're going to be in the book of Acts. And I just want to, I want to close our, our consideration of Mary with just this moment after Jesus has ascended. So uh, in Ch- Acts chapter 1 and verse 6, when they, the disciples, had come together, They asked him, Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, is it it is not for you to know uh, times or seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, the zealot, Judas, the son of James. All these were with one accord, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Can I offer you a curious thing I have never noticed before? Is it possible That Mary was there when Jesus ascended. She is listed here as one of the people that was there. And people say, well, you know, maybe she was just in the upper room. She didn't go. You're kidding me, right? Jesus goes with his disciples and his mom. The resurrected Jesus goes with his disciples and his mom goes, no, I'm going to stay here. I think she was there. This is the last time that Mary is mentioned in the Bible. Um, She says nothing. She does nothing. Now you say, what's the significance of that? Well, I think there's tremendous significance in that moment. When, When the angel appeared to Mary and told her that she was going to give birth to the Son of the Most High, You know that Mary, think about this. 
Mary was the first to submit in the presence of Jesus. To submit to him in the presence of Jesus. When she found out that, that she was going to carry him in her womb. When she found out. I mean, imagine the few weeks between that announcement and the confirmation that she was actually pregnant. That must have been a tense time for her. But she is the first. She submits her body. That's why in the Magnificat, she says she calls herself the handmaiden or the servant of the Lord. She submits. She is the first to submit to the incarnate Jesus. And she is also the first, and I think this is important, to surrender any claim to authority that she might have derived from her connection with him. Mary, in the book of Acts, submits to the authority of this bunch of bumbling idiots we call the apostles. They, at points in the Gospels, they are like the three stooges times four. But they are Jesus' chosen leaders. They are his chosen apostles. So the word apostle, it's a, it's a Roman word. It means, uh, it's Greek, but it's used in the Roman context. The apostle was somebody who was sent out by a king to be his representative, his missionary, his ambassador, his, his, his uh, proclaimer, if you will, his herald. Mary, of all the human beings alive at this moment, has the greatest claim to a succession authority from Jesus. She says nothing. She does nothing. Mary passes into silence. Disappears from the biblical narrative right here at the beginning of the church when probably people were looking to her for leadership. What would your son do? Who better would know what her son would do? In fact, her disappearance is so abrupt that the next generations of believers, the next few generations of believers have to invent myths around her to get her back into the story. She just steps away. She grows an old lady living in John's house probably a widow, probably serving. I imagine, and I could be wrong, but I imagine there were moments when Mary was serving in the church like the widows were supposed to do, and she encountered somebody and she just had a conversation with them, and then they realized who she was because she just did not make a big deal about it. And, and without getting in too far abreast, when you read the book of Revelation and you read about uh, the woman Jezebel in the letters in the Revelation. I think that John sees that particular woman that was corrupting the churches in Asia Minor as a direct antithesis of Mary. Mary was submitted to the authority of the apostles. She was submitted to the service of, of Jesus Christ, her Lord. And this woman in Revelation that John, remember John is taking care of Mary. He carried, cared for Mary uh, into her old age. He sees this woman completely antithetical to her. That's a whole other sermon. I won't get there. Somebody will preach it one day. She disappears so abruptly. Gone from the story. We never hear about her again. We don't know when she died. So in, in the generations that followed, they started to develop this idea of the dormition. Have you ever heard that word? You hear the word dormitory in there? 
the the uh, the early medieval church, uh, the the late an, late ancient late antiquity early medieval period, they had such a hard prob, hard hard time with Mary just disappearing from the story that they said, well, see what happened was everybody thought that Mary died, but what she really did was she fell asleep and then God carried her to heaven. Yeah, no. I think Mary died like every other human being died. I think she was born like every other human being. She died just like every other human being. She went to be in the presence of the Lord and her son Jesus. And I'm not saying that that wasn't a great reunion when she went to be with him. But she, she was not in any way, shape, or form more holy, more gracious, more wonderful than any other human being. And the extraordinary thing about Mary is that she understood that about herself. So she disappears from the story. Why does that matter for the early church? I want to just give you why it's so important. In the Roman world, women were not allowed to hold public office. They, um, uh, in, in Roman law, women were actually allowed to divorce their husbands, which you weren't allowed to do in Greek law or Jewish law. But they were, they, they were allowed to divorce their husbands. They were allowed to own property. But they were not allowed in any way, shape, or form to have public office or serve in an official public capacity. So the Roman world was really a world of um, covertly authoritative women. Women who used the men they were related to as a conduit for their agendas. I'm going to tell you, a couple, tell you about a couple of them, just in case you want to Google them. Uh, the first one is Fulvia Antonia. Fulvia Antonia uh, was a, the wife of Mark Antony, if you've ever heard that name. Um, she actually had her previous husband killed so that she could marry Mark Antony. She was, she was a prize. Um, and she was the impetus. She, her, her, um, her father was actually uh, a traitor. He actually fought against, um, uh, against, there's a couple of traitors in here, fought against um, the, the Roman authority. But she basically, she married Mark Antony. And when Mark Antony went off to fight against the people that had killed Julius Caesar, Caesar was killed in 44 BC, uh, uh, Caesar's adopted son Octavius or Augustus, Mark Antony and another guy that nobody ever remembers, um, got together and they went to fight all the traitors. Well, Mark Antony went off to fight them. He left her in charge of Rome. Unofficially. She managed to run the city into the ground. And if I'm not mistaken, she was strangled for her treason. Primarily because she had such a loose hold on her husband that when he got to Egypt, he immediately started having an affair with Cleopatra, the queen of the Egyptians, and they died together. But she was a, a powerful woman. But they get better. Um, uh, Livia Drusilla, who was the wife of Augustus Caesar, the one that Jesus, when he was born, uh, she actually had a son by her previous husband. Um, her son was named Tiberius. He eventually became uh, the emperor, the Roman emperor. And Tiberius was the Roman emperor when Jesus was crucified. So that kind of gives you an idea of where she is. Uh, Livia was such an interesting person that she also, her, her father and her brother fought, uh, fought on the side of the people that assassinated Julius Caesar. When they lost, she rushed off and married the son of Julius Caesar so she couldn't be killed. Um, she, uh, she then proceeded to live alongside him. Augustus lived a long, long, healthy life. 
Um, he became emperor around 40 BC, and he actually ruled until well after Jesus was born, until about, uh, I think it was 15 AD. I, I could be getting my numbers wrong. Um, but uh, then she killed him. That was never proven, um, but many people suspected that as soon as Augustus appointed her son, Tiberius, remember, it was not, her, not Augustus's son, Tiberius was her son from her previous marriage, as soon as he appointed Tiberius as heir, Augustus died. Manipulating, and there were rumors that she was the one who was manipulating all the things that Augustus was doing. Augustus was actually a fascinating person, a very interesting leader. He was what we might call the world's first modern politician. He managed to never say anything of weight, but sound like he did. He managed to do things without looking like he was doing anything. Um, he was very good. He was a, a very suave. He was never actually called emperor, by the way. These guys were never called emperor. Uh, Augustus called himself princeps, which means first man. He's like, oh, I'm just like you, just, you know, richer, more handsome, fancier, and I can have you killed. But she's not even the best one. The one that's alive when this is written, okay, because remember, the, the, the Gospels, Luke and stuff, they're not written like, this is written later, during the reign, the the during uh, the ministry of Paul, which is when Luke is written. Well, who was Roman emperor when Paul was alive? You guys know. He didn't actually fiddle as Rome burned, but that's how most people know him. Nero. Nero's mom, Agrippina the younger, Julia Agrippina, was a piece of work. She was the wife of Claudius, who was um, who had become emperor, not because he wanted to, but because the Roman uh, the Roman Praetorians found him hiding behind a curtain, um, and they made him. I'm not making this up. All right, um, they drag him out. He was the the uh, previous Caligula's uh, uncle. They drag him out. They make him emperor. She was the the wife of Claudius, and she poisoned him in front of him. She actually told him she was going to poison him, and then she did. This woman was a piece of work. She was the mother of uh, Nero, the emperor Nero, and for the first eight years of his reign, she actually ruled Rome. She was the power behind the throne. And then when Nero got frustrated with it, he tried to kill her three times. And she kept, one time he had the ceiling of her bedroom collapse on top of her, and she survived. She was a piece of work. He tried to sink a, he tried to drown her by sinking a boat. And she managed to jump on top of the only slave that could swim and make him swim her to the ground. I mean, this, this woman, she was, she was wild. Uh, she ruled in all but name until finally Nero killed her. But, but her, uh, she was actually one of the reasons that Nero was so unbelievably unstable. He was not a, he, he was not right in the head. All right. Um, and it was because of his mom and the way that she manipulated the situation. Can you see why it's so important for Luke that Mary is there and submitted to the authority of the apostles? She's not manipulating. She's not controlling. Can you see why John, in, 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 in the Gospel of John, at the marriage of Cana, she simply submits to Jesus and she says, do whatever he says to do. 
Because these Christians were living in a world where there were women who were grasping after power, using their powerful husbands and sons for power. And Mary chooses grace rather than grasping. In a world of covertly powerful women, Mary chose to be openly submitted to the authority of Jesus. And if there's one thing that I draw from Mary, if there's one practical lesson you can draw from her, it is this. All right? It's very straightforward. Christians have no hidden agenda. If you want to be like Mary... Don't manipulate, don't play, don't don't try to work the system. I mean, I love Bill Belichick as a coach of the Patriots, but if I lived anywhere else in the country, I would hate the man. Because he manipulates and plays and gamemanship and I get through loopholes and slide all these and do all these games. Christians are not players. Mary was the first to submit to Jesus bodily. And then given an opportunity to seize power, given an opportunity to be the woman, as it were, she is simply there by herself as a mother to to Jesus's half brothers and sisters. She begins as a mother. She ends as a mother. She serves full of grace. That's why I think the angel greets her and says, Mary, full of grace. She was a gracious Loving, submitted woman. Now, submission is not surrendering God's appointed place for you. It is accepting God's appointed place, God's appointed authority, God's appointed role for us. Uh, Men and women both. I don't want to make this sound like it's only women that need to submit. Men and women both need to be submitted to Christ. Like Mary was. Submitted to the authority of the apostles, which, by the way, is the New Testament. There's not apostles running around today, no matter what the church tells you. Not this church, but capital C. The authority of the apostles is here in the scriptures. And we are called to be gracious, not grasping. We are called to be submitted. Not slaves, but servants. That's what we can draw from Mary. Did Mary have all the claim in the world at being unique? Yes. Only virgin birth in history. Only woman to raise God incarnate. That's why, by the way, the Council of Chalcedon declared her Theotokos, the God bearer. Now, I don't necessarily agree with all the theology that was built in that, but they wanted to make it very clear that Mary, that Jesus was 100% God. And he was born 100% of a woman. And yet, with all that claim to power, Mary chooses grace. She chooses obscurity for the rest of her life. And the question we always have to have in front of us is what will we choose? Will we choose to try to grasp power where we can find it 
or we choose the grace of Christ where we find ourselves.